Today, uh, we're going to continue our conversation from the book of James, James chapter 3, about nuts and bolts. Remember a few weeks ago, we gave out some little nuts and bolts because James is a book about the nuts and bolts of what it means to follow Jesus. The idea behind these is you put them in your pocket and you just keep remembering to tighten that intimacy and that relationship with God. Today we're going to talk from James chapter 3. If you have your Bible, turn there. If you want to look it up on version, uh, do so, and you can find some notes and all that kind of things. But we're going to be talking, I'm going to be talking from James chapter 3, which is all about the tongue. Now, I've been sitting with this passage for a while now, and I've been reading through it and planning more intently this week. And I need to tell you that the passage in James 3 is not an easy passage. In some ways, for some of us, it should convict us. Because we don't always use our tongue well, and we can cause a lot of hurt with our tongue. For other people, they will experience the other side of James' teaching. Not because they hurt people a lot with their tongue, but because they have been hurt by the tongue. There is a a correlation between the two, right? It is very true that hurt people hurt people. And often those who have been hurt by the tongue will in turn use their tongue to hurt others. And so as we're reading James chapter 3 today, if this word needs to convict you, let it. If this word needs to heal you, let it. Because the conclusion of this passage comes back to Jesus, who will both convict you and heal you as he meets you where you need to be. So I want to start by reading you a story. And I'll conclude the story at the end of the message, but this is a very descriptive story. And so if you would, just close your eyes as I read this story. It's from a book called Messy Spirituality by Mike Yacanali. If you just close your eyes and, and picture this setting. For almost 40 years, Margaret had lived with the memory of one soul-scarring day in a one-room schoolhouse that she attended. From the very first day Margaret came to class, she and Miss Garner, her bitter and harsh teacher, didn't get along. Over the years, the animosity between them only worsened until one fateful day when Margaret was nine years old. Her life was altered forever. That day, Margaret frantically raced into her classroom after recess late again. Miss Garner was furious. Margaret, she shouted. 
We've been waiting for you. Get up here now to the front of the class right now. Margaret walked slowly to the teacher's desk, was told to face the class, and then her nightmare began. Miss Garner ranted, Boys and girls, Margaret has been a bad girl. I've tried to help her be responsible, but apparently she doesn't want to learn. So we must teach her a lesson. We must force her to face what a selfish person she has become. I want each of you to come to the front of the room, take a piece of chalk, and write something bad about Margaret on the blackboard. Maybe this experience will motivate her to become a better person. As they wrote these words, they spoke these words. Margaret stood frozen next to Miss Garner one by one. The students began a silent procession to the blackboard. One by one, the students spoke and wrote their life smothering words, slowly extinguishing the light in Mary's soul. Margaret's soul. Margaret is stupid. Margaret is selfish. Margaret is fat. Margaret is a dummy. On and on they went until 25 terrible scribblings of Margaret's badness screamed from the blackboard. These venomous sentences taunted Margaret in what felt like the longest day of her life. After walking home with each causic word indelibly written on her soul, she crawled into her bed claiming sickness and tried to cry the pain away. But the pain never left. And 40 years later, she was slumped in a waiting room of a psychologist's office, still cringing in the shadow of those 25 sentences. To her horror, Margaret had slowly become what the students had written. James offers us a warning because that extreme story happens in subtle and in obvious ways in so many areas of life. As James is speaking, he's speaking to people like Margaret, and he's speaking to people like Mrs. Garner, and he's speaking to people like us. The first thing that James says in James chapter 3 is this. Words shape people. Words shape people. This is how James starts off. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that teachers will receive a stricter judgment. Words shape people. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's mature. And he's also able to control the whole body. Words shape people. 
Now, if we put a bit into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, then we can direct the whole horse. In this first section, James says, words shape people. His warning, first of all, is to teachers. He says, teachers, if you stand up there and speak, especially speaking the word of God, if you claim to influence for Christ and his kingdom, then watch out. Because your words about his word shape a lot of people. If you get it wrong, a lot of harm can be done. We've seen recently, I was uh, involved in a situation on Tuesday evening where I saw lots of people who were claiming the name of Christ and were trying to influence, but they were not influencing in the way that Jesus would influence. My heart broke because their words about his word was hurting people and shaping them in the wrong way. He doesn't say no one should be teachers. He doesn't say you shouldn't be an influence. But what he's really saying here is that if you want to influence, and I would add if you want to pick up your call to influence, because we're all called to influence for Christ and his kingdom, then know two things. First of all, know the truth. Because if we're going to influence that which is false, we are going to cause all kinds of damage. We are living in a world now where truth has become relative. And we see the damage that it is causing because those who influence aren't watching their words when it comes to truth. The second thing he says to teachers It's teachers, if you're going to teach, if you're going to influence, make sure that you are doing it with integrity. Make sure that you are are living out the words that you are saying so that your words are not empty, your words are not hypocritical. He starts off by saying, teachers, you got to watch yourself because words shape people. Then he goes on to say, that's true for teachers, but the reality is that's true for all of us because all of us stumble in so many ways. We say things we don't want to say. We say the wrong thing. We speak when we should be quiet. Our words cause all kinds of pain. And so he says, look, we all stumble. All of our words carry weight. All of our words shape people. He says, in fact, a sign of maturity is when you use your words to shape people well and not to shape them negatively. He says the one who can can, can master their words is the one who's on the track to maturity. And he says, if you can, if you can master this little thing called the tongue, this, this small piece that can cause a lot of trouble, 
then you're on the way to controlling your, your whole body. Just think of a, a horse that wants to, to run rampant, do its own thing. We put a little bit in its mouth. And once we can control that, we can control everything about that horse. He's saying our words shape people, and therefore we need to bridle our tongue. We need to control it. The first thing that James is saying is your words shape people. And I think he's implying the question, how are you going to let your words shape people? Are you going to let the things that you say build? Or are you going to allow the things that you say to destroy others? The first thing that James is saying in these first few verses is that words shape people. And the question becomes, how are you going to use your words? Verses four to six, he continues. You understand that your words have great power to shape, but your words have power way beyond what you intend. He goes on to say that not only do words shape people, but words can ignite situations. Starting at verse 4, this is what he says, And consider ships. Though they're very large, and though they're driven by fierce winds, they are guarded by a small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it can boast great things. Consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest. And your tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of righteousness, is placed among the members. It can stain the whole body, set the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. The first thing that James is saying is that your words shape people's lives. The second thing he's saying is that your words can ignite situations. Talks about this big ship that is controlled by a small rudder. Your little rudder, your ability or inability to control your words sets the direction for something often much bigger than you. There's a phrase that was used during World, by World War II. It was part of Churchill's... Um, uh, rhetoric that he used to encourage the, the nation and the world to, um, to kind of stay uh, engaged. And his phrase was, loose lips sink ships. Remember that? And, and, and he came up with that because there were a lot of spies uh, among us that he didn't know about. And so he encouraged everyone to be discreet. Loose lips sink ships. Because if you gave away your plan, 
it could be very harmful to the strategy of the enemy as he uses it against you. The same thing is true of our words. It's why we need a rudder that he says is directed by a pilot. And what he's doing here is he's introducing this idea that we on our own can't control our words, so we need to ask Jesus to be our pilot, to be our captain, and invite the Holy Spirit to be that rudder so that what we're influencing and how we're shaping and what we're igniting is igniting in a good way rather than a a tough way. He gives this example that is so true. He says with just a small spark, you can set ablaze a large forest. We've seen it, right? Over and over again, a little word that becomes so much bigger than it could have been. I've been involved in all kinds of conflicts and tensions, sometimes causing them, sometimes trying to resolve them. And when there's this big kind of explosion, this big burn, when when things are getting out of control, I've sat with people who started it, and they all said, both sides, we never envisioned it to get this ugly. From a little word, a lot of destruction can come. She says, when you use your tongue in a world of unrighteousness, it can do a lot of damage. What he's saying here, I believe, as he talks about this world of unrighteousness, is he says, be very, very careful with your tongue because we are living in a world that is ready to burn. People are so on edge and the wrong word can push them over. People are in so much pain and the wrong word can make things worse. The environment around us is ready to burn. And so we must be very, very careful that we use our words in the right way. If you get your tongue right, it sets the course of life in the right direction. If you get the words you use wrong, it sets the course of life on fire. And he says this, and itself is set on fire by hell. And he's introducing the idea that there is some spiritual evil power behind the wrong words that we use. And anybody who has used wrong words or been the victim of wrong words knows that to be true, right? The enemy loves nothing more than to twist our words, than to grab a hold of the wrong ones and to use them to ignite something destructive. It says that this fire is a fire that comes from hell. There are two words for, for hell in Scripture, this one. Uh, is Ganea, which is uh, talking about the burning of the garbage site just out of town. He could well have been saying, hey, 
Every town has this Ganea, right? This place where the garbage goes to burn. Let's set it on fire. Words shape people. Words ignite situations. You, you know, sometimes when we're, when we're tempted with words and we're not sure what to say, the best thing to say is nothing. James says it's, it's so hard to contain the tongue. It's restless. We just need to say nothing because if we can stop talking, maybe we can just stop some of the pain. I'm sure we've all been in those situations. I know I have too. And it's like as the words are coming in my mouth, I want to wind them back in. Sometimes the best thing we can do is, is say nothing. Words shape people. Words ignite situations. And the question about our words in terms of situations is are we going to use our words to ignite something good or something bad? He concludes, verse 7, Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we can bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives, my brothers and sisters, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt water spring yield fresh water. The third thing that I think James is saying and James is warning us about is that words have a power to reveal our inconsistencies. That words have the power to reveal a problem in our heart. They shape people, they ignite situations, but they reveal inconsistency. That's what the passage at the end is all about. It says you've got a spring... That spring is only going to let out of it one kind of water. It's either going to be sweet or it's going to be bitter. And you want it to be sweet. He says, say you're growing a, a fig tree. That tree is not going to produce olives. If you've got a grapevine, that grapevine doesn't produce figs. What he's saying is that our words are the fruit of what's in our heart. That our words reveal how we're feeling about something, how we're understanding something. But ultimately, I think he's saying that our words are about the state of our heart. The tongue is a restless evil. We can't control it on our own. It's a deadly poison. We can't control that. The tongue is meant to bless, but we use it to curse. Cursing was a horrible thing. Cursing is a horrible thing. Cursing means literally to wish someone away from God. 
This phrase curse here literally means go to hell, which is why James said we should not curse anyone made in God's likeness. Because if they're made in God's likeness, they're loved by God. They are special to God. They are cared for by God. Words, James says, shape people. Words, James says, ignite situations. Words, James says, reveal the inconsistency in our heart. With the first point about shaping people, the question is, am I going to use my words to shape people for better or for worse? With a second point about words igniting situations, the question is, am I going to use my words to ignite good or bad? And as words reveal our inconsistency, the question, though, is about the state of our heart. What do my words reveal about the state of my heart? Am I being driven by myself? Or am I being led by God? Am I using my words for selfish gain? To build up myself and destroy others? Or am I using my words to humble myself and build up others? James says, your words shape people. Your words ignite situations. Your words reveal inconsistency that brings us to Jesus. If we want to speak well, if we want to speak better, we need to let Jesus take over our lives to heal the hurt, to use our tongue to bless. Remember, Margaret, by the grace of God, that soul-scarring day didn't have the last word on Margaret's life. After decades of depression and anxiety, she finally sought help and was having the last meeting with her psychologist. Two long years of weekly counseling helped Margaret to remove herself from her past. It had been a long and difficult journey, but she smiled at her counselor how long it had been since she smiled. They talked together about her readiness to move on. Well, Margaret, the counselor said softly, I guess it's graduation day for you. How are you feeling? After a long silence, Margaret spoke. I, I'm okay. The counselor hesitated. Margaret, I know this will be difficult, but just to make sure you're ready to move on, I'm going to ask you to do something. I want you to go back to your schoolroom and one more time detail the events of that day. 
Take your time, describe each of the children as they approach the blackboard. Remember what they wrote and how you felt, all 25 students. In a way, this was going to be easy for Margaret because for 40 years she'd remembered every detail. And yet to go through this nightmare one more time would take every bit of strength she had. After a long silence, she began the painful description. One by one, she described each of the students vividly as though she'd just seen them, stopping periodically to regain her composure, forcing herself to face each of those students one more time. Finally, she was done, and the tears would not stop, could not stop. Margaret cried a long time before she realized someone whispering her name. Margaret, Margaret, Margaret. She looked up to see her counselor staring her in the eyes, saying her name over and over again. Margaret stopped crying for a moment. Margaret, you left one person out. I certainly did not. She said, I've lived with this story for 40 years. I know every student by heart. No, Margaret. You did forget that there was someone else in that room. He's sitting in the back of the classroom. He's standing up and he's walking towards your teacher, Miss Garner. She's handing him a piece of chalk and he's taking it, Margaret. He's taking it. Now he's walking over to the blackboard and, and Margaret, he's picked up the eraser. He's erasing every one of the sentences the students wrote. They're gone. Margaret, they're gone. Now he's turning and looking at you, Margaret. Do you recognize him? His name is Jesus. Look, he's writing new sentences on the board. Margaret is loved. Margaret is beautiful. Margaret is gentle. Margaret is kind. Margaret is strong. Margaret has great courage. And Margaret began to weep. But very quickly, the weeping turned into a smile and then into laughter and then into tears of joy. After 40 dark years, Margaret was no longer condemned, no longer alone, no longer rejected. The blindness of her past horror was removed. Words hurt, but Jesus can heal. We say the most destructive, hurtful things, but Jesus can hear the speaker, and he heals the speaker. That's what forgiveness does. James says your words shape people. And the reality is every day we shape, we shape some people in good ways and other in negative ways. He says your words ignite situations. And sometimes we say things that, that, that do some real good. 
Sometimes we say some things that just destroy. He says, your words reveal what's going on inside and who's controlling inside. And sometimes it seems like Jesus is controlling us. And sometimes it seems like the enemy is. But whether you're using your words for good or bad, whether your life has been shaped by words that are painful and harmful and hurtful, the invitation of God through Jesus is to step by step, piece by piece, lovingly heal us. Whether we're causing hurt or we have hurt, the answer is Jesus.